0: Well, good morning. Looking forward to our time in the Word uh, today, and uh, so good to see each and every one of you, and thankful for our opportunity uh, to be together and to uh, celebrate. I do want to give you just, and I never make announcements in the service, Uh, y'all know me well enough by now, unless it's something that's very, very important. Um, So this is is vitally important, and I want you to, to know about it is uh, beginning this Wednesday, Jason and Mark are going to be uh, walking through a study uh, to help us to understand um, world religions, uh, the religions of the world, um, who their founder is, what their population, the constituency of those particular religions, their false um, doctrine and theology, a false path to salvation or whatever their goal is in those religions and how they um, differ from the gospel that we know and believe. And this is going to be extremely helpful and beneficial uh, for you in engaging in conversations with others around you who believe different things. We want to equip you to be able to identify the false... Gospels that are being spread around the world to be firm in the one true gospel and to know uh, how to um, discuss and combat um, people who have those false beliefs and truly uh, are destined for hell that God might use us in order to um, win the lost So, uh, look forward to uh, that study over the next several weeks. On uh, Wednesday, and this coming Wednesday, will kind of be an introduction to that study, and then we'll be um, moving forward from there. So, very thankful for their willingness to uh, to do that. This morning, I want to take a look in Revelation chapter eight. Revelation chapter eight. We're going to begin our study today. in verse 13. And we are not, before we get into Revelation chapter 9, there are some uh, introductory things that we need to understand. If we just pick up in Revelation chapter 9 and read, full, read ahead without some of the background study and without tying other things in, both this week and next week, then we come, to, we come to verses in chapter 9 and what we do is, is we simply say, I don't have a clue who that is. I don't have a clue what that means. But oh well, I believe it is the Bible and we keep going. I don't think that's the approach that God has for us in His Word. Um, I do believe that there's mystery found in the book of Revelation. However, I don't think there is as much mystery in the book of Revelation as people like to suggest there is. What I think is, is I think that it's a mystery because we don't do these background studies and we don't do these introductory things that help us to relate and understand. And once we, once we come to the place that we see what all of God's Word has to say and what God's Word teaches us in other places, then we apply those things and those truths to the book of Revelation. So we're letting the Bible interpret the Bible. It removes the mystery in a lot of areas and a lot of places and really gives us a, a, a great amount of understanding. And so... We come to a section in the Scriptures at the fifth trumpet judgment that things are vastly different, vastly deeper, vastly darker than anything that we have seen up to this point. We're in the second series of of judgments of God. We've already studied the seven seals. And in the pouring out of the seventh seal came the seven trumpets. And we've already considered the first four trumpet judgments of God. And we're getting ready to begin the fifth trumpet judgment of God. And just like the fifth seal judgment of God was unique and vastly different from the first four seal judgments... The fifth trumpet judgment is vastly different and unique from the first four trumpet judgments. In fact, it is so different and so dark and so devastating that God sends an angel to give warning to the earth about what is about to take place. Take a look at this, and this is really at the end of the fourth trumpet judgment. We come to verse 14, John is caught up into heaven, and remember that from Revelation, really chapter 4 through chapter 19, except for a few places, and we'll point those out along the way, the perspective is from heaven. John is caught up into heaven. He's caught up into the throne room of God. And he is watching what takes place not from the position of the earth and the judgments coming upon him, but from the position of heaven and Jesus being the one who has taken the scroll, who has loosed the seals, and who is casting or sending or releasing His judgments upon the earth. So here between the four, where the fourth angel sounded in verse 12, we have this statement, and I don't want to skip this or miss it. I want to think about this, and I want to think the impact of this and let this be our jumping off point for this study that's going to take place this week and next week. Revelation chapter 8 verse 13, the Bible says, then I looked And I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now, I want to just I want you to capture this the details of this particular verse and what's taking place. We have already seen that from our understanding of God's word the church has been removed from the earth in some percentage of the people. We have already seen that a significant population of the earth has already been destroyed. We have also seen that creation itself has been destroyed in in so many ways. Trees, grass, right? The economic system has been turned upside down. <clears throat> we have already seen that even the, the waters and the ships and all of those things have been impacted and affected, which ultimately not only affects the physical environment upon the earth, but also affects right, the world system in which we live, the economic system, right? Um, and, and all the things that go along with that. So even through the conclusion of the first seal judgments and through the first four judgments, if we were to have a, a circle graph and, and really you know, kind of block out the percentage, if it's a pie graph, And we're going to block out a percentage of the population of the earth that's already been destroyed by this time. Our graph would go (coughs) starting from the 12 o'clock position all the way past the three, past the six, past the halfway part, all the way to about seven o'clock ish, if you will. Rough estimates. We don't have exact numbers. But approximately that percentage of the population of the earth has already been devastated, affected, and destroyed from the judgments that are to come. So if you want to see exactly how bad it is, I would simply remind you that when planes crash into the tower... On September 11th, 2001, on such a tragic day here in the history of America where 3,000 plus people lost their lives and the way that 3,000 people in one instant has affected much of everything that we do and the way we understand things and the way we do things, imagine how much the world will change for those who have lived through this. No wonder... Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 that unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. That's how devastating things have, have already gotten in what's known as the tribulation period of time. We move now into this section and, and God, perhaps in His grace... Uh, certainly everything God does is gracious and full of mercies. His mercies are unending every day. God is not taunting the people upon the earth who can do absolutely nothing about what's coming. But I believe that what God is doing in His grace and mercy by sending the eagle to announce the woe, woe, woe upon the earth and to give some warning about what to come, is so that perhaps some who have ears to hear might be able to hear and respond to the Gospel before the next round of judgments come. Now we have already seen that God has saved those who are the elect, the church, before the tribulation period began and called us up into heaven. We have also seen in our study of Revelation that God has, we saw in Revelation chapter 7, verse 4, that He um, uh, uh, sealed 144,000 people from every tribe of the sons of Israel, and He placed seals upon their head, and these super evangelists will be protected through the tribulation period as long as God chooses to protect them and use them for His glory. We've also seen in the book of Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 that there's a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And these would be those who were saved out of the tribulation, joining with the church, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, standing in the throne room of God and worshiping Him. And all of these people would be the elect of God before the tribulation comes via the church. After the tribulation comes, those God has chosen to save what we also saw if we were to go back into Revelation chapter 6 during the 5th seal judgment that there are martyrs who have lost their lives during the tribulation period. There There are people who have lost their lives for the cause of Christ And their souls are under the altar in heaven, and they're crying out to God, saying, How long, in verse 10, Revelation 6, verse 10, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And in Revelation 6.11 says that there was given to each one of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. Now look at this, Revelation 6.11, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. So death and destruction is not yet complete upon the earth. And God is still going to save people during this tribulation period. And people are still going to die. And there is a number in the mind of God that will be complete. And when those numbers of martyrs are complete, these are told to rest until that number is complete, indicates that God is sovereign over those who live through the tribulation, those who die in the tribulation. Some will die and spend eternity in hell. Some will be saved and be killed and spend all of eternity in heaven. Some will live through the tribulation until we get further along in there. But in all of these things, one thing that you can absolutely believe is this, is that God is sovereign and you can trust Him and you can trust His Word. And so when we come to Revelation chapter 8, verse 13, and there's this eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, 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 not to those who are already in heaven. And it's not saying woe, whoa, woe, whoa, woe, whoa, W-O-A-O-A-H, it's like stop, stop, stop. He's saying woe, woe is about to come. Devastation and destruction is about to come on those who dwell on the earth Because of the remaining blast of the trumpet. And notice it says, of the three angels who are about to sound. So I think it's vitally important that before we press ahead into chapter 9 verse 1 and the fifth angel sounding, that we need to be reminded of some truths that we see here in the book of Revelation. We've already covered. And we're also going to look at Psalm 104 today. We're going to look at Colossians and Ephesians. One thing I um, I, I want to point out is I want to point out that all of this devastation and destruction that comes upon the earth is initiated by the sovereign will and work of God. Right? God is the one who had the the scroll in His hand. Jesus is the one who is the only one worthy to take that scroll and to loose its seals. And in taking that scroll and loosing the seals, He is the one that initiates the judgments upon the earth. He is the one that chooses the means for which those judgments come. So the first thing I want us to look at today is, is we, we're seeing a lot of the world and a lot of the earth, the physical earth itself, is being destroyed. The grass is being destroyed. We've already seen trees destroyed. We've already seen blood uh, in the water system. And and we've seen the skies falling and the stars coming down. And one of the things that, that people might happen is they might say, how in the world can God do this to His own creation? And I think even in asking that question, you answer the question itself. Because it's not how can God do this to His own world in which He created it's that God owns the world and He can do with it whatever He chooses. Right? You see see the difference? The difference is... Is it it all it belongs to him and because it belongs to him, he is to be celebrated and worshiped because he is the creator and by him all things were created, but because he created it and because he owns it, he can choose to do with it whatever he chooses to do. One of the things that I don't want you to miss in our study of Revelation is how important the creation aspect of God is and how often it comes up. If you go back, for example, in Revelation chapter 4... Revelation chapter 4, this is a scene in heaven. John is caught up into heaven, and we spent time looking at things that were on the throne and around the throne, and in the midst of the throne, and all of those things within the throne room of God. And what we saw when we got down to verse 9 of Revelation chapter 4 when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, so that, remember the living creatures are angels, and they're giving praise to God. The 24 elders, I believe, are the church in heaven are giving um, praise to God. They fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they'll cast their crowns before the throne saying... And what they're going to say, notice this, in relation or in regard to creation... So here they are. They're in heaven. This praise and worship and glory is going on in heaven. And the thing that they are emphasizing in their praise and adoration and worship of God who lives forever and ever is the aspect of creation. Notice what it says in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Now we have the purpose for... All right? So, if God does nothing else, these who are in heaven before the throne room of God who have clear understanding of the things that have taken place up to this point, they believe, if nothing else, that God is worthy of honor and worthy of power, worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because of the creative aspects of God. Notice what it says. For, purpose purpose word, you created all things. You created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. So here in heaven, the first aspect that they're given praise and honor and glory to God is because He is the Creator of everything that is and everything that shall be. And you know things that are visible in things that are invisible. I think it's important for us to, to hold that thought in our mind because here in Revelation, they begin by worshiping the God who creates, but then when we get to Revelation chapter 5, in verse 9, they sang a new song. And here they say, "...worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood." So Jesus is the one being worshipped here. Purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And notice what it says about these people. You have made them to be a kingdom. It doesn't say they arrived or they achieved, they were educated to the level of becoming, they were voted in. It simply says you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And notice what it says. If they live right, if they do right, if they jump through the proper hoops, if they can just gain influence, they will reign upon the earth. It doesn't say that at all. It says, God, you have purchased these people through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You've made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign upon the earth. So here in this one, what we see is, is we see the God who saves. So in Revelation chapter 4, we have the God who creates. In Revelation chapter 5, we have the God who saves. And both in, in relation in regard to the aspect of creation in the physical world, visible and invisible, and in relation to the people that He created and that He redeemed, God is worthy of all praise. Now, I want to focus on this aspect of creation for just a moment. And you're familiar with the famous passage of Scripture, right? In Genesis 1 1, in the beginning, God <coughs> created the heavens and the earth. I want us to go to a passage that you're not as familiar with Psalm 104. In Psalm 104, and we won't quite see all the aspects of this today but I want to introduce this to you because what we're going to see in Psalm 104 is it talks about the Lord's care over all of his works and what we're going to see is we're going to see the things that we see here in Revelation I mean excuse me in Psalm 104 is a brief theology really of the book of Revelation uh, that we'll see in the days ahead But I want to remind us, if there's one aspect of God uh, that's under attack today, it is the idea that God is the Creator. That God is the Creator. Uh, In fact, in our school system today they don't teach that God is creator. Oh, some may mention some Christians who are teaching in in public schools uh, would, would throw that in there as they possibly can. But they are mandated and required not to teach creation, but to teach what? Evolution. And you cannot believe that our world came from God who created the heavens and the earth and that the world came about on its own through evolution. Those two beliefs and views are incompatible, particularly when it comes to what's called macro uh, evolution. Microevolution that there's a species that develops and evolves and becomes something else and develops other features that benefits and care. I don't think anybody would deny what's called micro-evolution, micro, micro that they, you remain within the same species and pick up different characteristics and different things, adjust the environment you live in and things like that along the way. No one is, is uh, I, I think, who's studied uh, and seen uh, creatures and history and things like that uh, would not believe in micro evolution, but in terms of macro evolution, that one species becomes another, that ape becomes a man, that whatever, however you want to define that—that that is the, those two views are not compatible whatsoever. And if the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and you do not believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then you are already casting doubt on the God of the Bible. You are casting doubt on the Word of God and the Bible which we have been given. And therefore, the Bible itself becomes untrustworthy because if you can't believe the very first... Verse of the first book then it casts everything within the book and everything that the book says into doubt so the belief that God is the creator, maintainer, and sustainer of all that is in the world is vitally, vitally important for us as believers to believe in order to get our theology uh, right and of course our theology defines our practice or the way we live right? What you believe is what you'd be living, okay? You can say it with poor English, right? Your, your doctrine, right? Your doctrine refle- reflects your duties and your devotion. So, so it makes a difference. You can't turn off your brain when you come to church um, and and set aside uh, uh, the science to believe this here, and then step out in the world and quote unquote turn your brain back on and believe believe it out there. It's either all true or it's not, okay. And, and Psalm one hundred four talks about not only that the Lord created, but it talks about His care over all of His works. Look in Psalm one hundred forty. Uh, Psalm 104, verse 1, and I'm just going to walk through, I know it's 35 verses, Sarah, that's why I didn't have you to read this, I didn't want to put you on the spot to stand up and read 35 uh, verses, but I want to walk through these, and what I'd like to invite you to do is, as you have it there in your Bible, if you want to follow along, that's fine, or if you want to just listen, that's fine uh, as well. But I want you to pay attention to the active hand of God in His creation, and I want you to see the things that relate to Him. Verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. covering yourself with light as with a cloak. Now look at this. Stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of His upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds His chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the wind His messengers, flaming fire His ministers. Verse 5, He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with, with the deep. It's with the garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valleys sank to the place. Now look at this. Which you established for them. What is God's work in creation? Notice what it says in verse 9. You set a boundary that they may not pass over so that they will not return to cover the earth. I'm not worried about these things coming to destroy the earth. Why? Because God who created set the boundaries. Okay? Okay? God maintains those boundaries. God is in absolutely control of every mountain, every valley, every cloud in the sky, everything in regards and relation to creation He is. In fact, notice what it says in verse 10. He sends forth springs in the valleys. If the reason there are springs in the valleys is because God put them there. "...they flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides them, the birds of the heaven dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches." Notice what it says in verse 13. "...He waters the mountains from His chambers, and the earth is satisfied." Not with the fruit of evolution... The earth is satisfied with the fruit of His works. Notice again, notice the agent here that's behind this. Verse 14, He causes the grass to grow for the cattle. The reason grass grows and you have to mow it, because you don't have any cattle to eat it, right? If you had cattle, there it is. God's growing grass, so the cattle will eat it. And vegetation for... Now notice, notice it doesn't say for the... For man to eat, but for the labor of man. I'll let you wrestle with that in a little bit. So that he may bring forth food from the earth. So God created the system... That brings about the food of the earth that allows it to populate and to replant. Verse 15, and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil, and food which sustains man's hearts. The, the trees now look at this, whose trees are they? Verse 16. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, and the cedars of Lebanon. Now where these cedars of Lebanon come from, which he planted where the birds build their nests and the court, whose home is the fir trees. God is the creator of everything, visible and invisible. The reason things work and move and operate, the reason we have our lives and being and move in Him is because He put all of these things in place by His great power. In fact, he says in verse 18 that the mountains are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the Shepanism. He made the moon for the seasons. It didn't just come about. God made it and He made it for a purpose for the seasons. The the sun knows the place of its setting. You, God, appoint darkness and it becomes night in which all the beasts of the forest prowl. The young lions roar after their prey. Now look at what it says. And they seek food where? Not from the plains and the valleys and the weaklings of the animals. But they seek their food from God. When the sun rises, what do the lions do? They withdraw and they lie down in their den. Who told them to do that? God did. Man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. No wonder the psalmist who here is unknown says, O Lord, verse 24, How many are your works! In wisdom, you have made them some." You have made them few. You have made them all. 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 Everything is. In wisdom, you have made them all. In fact, notice what it says. The earth is full of new American standard. Your possessions, it all belongs to God. There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both great and small. There are ships, move along, in Leviathan. Leviathan just basically means, some places it means like a, a huge land creature here. The idea behind the original Hebrew, is the largest of the sea creatures, whatever they are, and we don't frankly have a clue what all is out there in the deep of the depths. Alright? Or the depths of the deep or however I should say that. We don't have a clue what's out there but whatever it is, this the largest of the sea creatures, notice what it says, which you have formed to sport in it. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them and they gather it up. You open your hand and they are satisfied with good. You hide your face and they are dismayed. You take away their spirit and they die. They expire and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit... They are created and you renew the face of the ground. So all of these things that happen, right? The, the water, the land, the trees, the animals, the creatures... All of these things are created by God, maintained by God, sustained by God, and they will exist as long as God has a purpose for them to exist. And when God's purpose for them both as a species, God's purpose for them as an as an individual item, God's purpose for them as a plant or a tree or whatever it is, will last regardless of global warming, will last regardless of whether you recycle or not, will last regardless of glaciers melting and all of this stuff that's going to come and take of the earth, the ozone layer, all of those things will will last exactly as long as God has them to last and they will fulfill the exact purpose for which God intended it to do and when God is through with those things, they will be no more. All of the world, all of the earth, all the things that are in it are created by God, maintained by God, sustained by God, and will go away at God's very command. Everything in this world, it belongs to God and, is, and He is sovereign over all of those things. No wonder, verse 31 says, "...let the glory of the Lord endure forever." Let the Lord be glad in His works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. Give God glory, for He is the Creator, the Maintainer, and the Sustainer of all things. Now, I want to be clear. As Christians, we ought to be good stewards of the earth that the Lord has provided God would not want us to be wasteful. God would not want us to, you know, to do all the things irresponsibly. He has placed man, which He created, right? He created us in His image and likeness. He formed woman out of the dust of ground. He breathed in man, right, into man's nostrils, and the man became a living being. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Every person is created in the image and likeness of God. Even when you were formed in your mother's womb, the psalmist says that God formed us. Jeremiah also says that God formed us in our mother's womb. Everything that exists, visible and invisible upon the earth, has the touch of God on it. Everything that is created, people, animals, plants, right, uh, material that you can see, material you can't see, all of it is for the purposes of God. We have the option opportunities to cry out to God in praise and worship and adoration and glory. And if we don't do that, God says that His plants will do what? The, even the rocks will what? Cry out if we fail to praise Him. All of it is under the sovereign care of God. And part of what we're seeing in the book of Revelation as it relates to God's creation is, is God has given us all of these things by way of creation. He has given us all of these things for His glory and for our good, when is the last time you sat down in the grass and looked at a blade of grass and gave God glory for it and yet it came from him for a purpose to to do the things that it does. You see, when it says the whole earth is full of His glory, if we would but take time to stop and look, not just the beautiful things, not just the Grand Canyon and wonder at the majesty of God, not just stand on the coast of the ocean and wonder at the majesty of God as we can't see beyond to the other side and the countless number of waves coming in. Not only should we look up to the clouds and see the wonder of God in creation by considering the beautiful clouds and all of those things that are in there, but even the things that never catch your attention, even the things that, that you never even think about, the things that you do, that if God did not provide them for you, you would not exist and be able to live and survive the things that you take for granted. Everybody do this. And give God glory because unless He gave you that breath, beloved, you would not be here for the next sentence. What if we were a people who truly believe that God creates and God maintains and God sustains and we worship and glorify Him forever because of all of those things in there, I promise you, you would have a few less bad days. God is worthy of praise and glory and honor because why? You have created all things and by Your will they exist. So beloved, when we come to the book of the Revelation, when God acts and moves in a way that He takes back the creation that He gave, God is free to do that. If God wants to take the beauty and the pristineness of water that is so clear in some places in our world that you can see a thousand feet deep in the clear blue water. If God wants to take that and turn it to blood, He can do it because it belongs to Him if God wants to take the trees and He wants to take even the sequoias in California, if He wants to take the Lebanons and all of these things, if He wants to do, if He wants to take those things and utterly destroy them, He absolutely can. He absolutely has the right because He created them, He maintains them and sustains them and can even use them for His purpose. Whenever they say in the book of Revelation that they want, we're going to see that they want the rocks, we've already seen part of it, to fall on them and to kill them, it is up to God whether or not that happens. Not up to their well wishes or desire. Because we're even going to see at this place, when we come to the place of the book of Revelation, that even those who desire death and seek it cannot find it. Which means they don't even have the ability to commit suicide. The ships of the ocean. Man didn't create the ships. The ships. God gave man the ability and God the one who put the pathways in place. God is the one who designed the wind to flow across the ocean directions and gave man wisdom to know how to navigate and do all of those things. If God wants to destroy a third of the ships off the earth, God is sovereign and just to do that because He created them and He can use them for His glory even if He uses them in judgment. you agree? Why? Because God is worthy of our worship and He's worthy of our praise because He has created everything. He maintains everything. The book of Hebrews says that He sustains everything by the very word of His mouth. God creates it for His glory. He maintains it for His glory. He sustains it for His glory. And He uses it, listen to me carefully, He uses it as an instrument in His hands in judgment for His glory. And the only response that we should have is praise and adoration and thanksgiving and glory to God. Because by Your will, all things were created and for Your glory. Just like in Revelation chapter 4, there's the creation. Just want to point out here at the end of Psalm 104, just because I don't want to skip the last three verses, it's also about redeeming people. You'll notice there are two groups of people upon the earth. Notice what it says in verse 33 Those who are saved, the psalmist says, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Let my meditation be pleasing to him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. You see that phrase, in the Lord. So there are people who are saved. There are people who are in the Lord. The Bible uses the word in Christ. In Christ. Study the book of Ephesians and you'll see it over and over and over and over. Those who are saved are called as those who are in Christ. And yet also, salvation is described as in Christ, but it's also Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. And then we compare that with verse 35 at the same time, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more... And notice the response of the sinners being consumed and notice the response of the wicked being destroyed and being no more. The psalmist concludes with, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. So even in the giving of creation, we worship God. Even in the maintaining and sustaining of creation, we worship God. And even in the destroying of aspects of creation that God takes back, it it demonstrates his power. It demonstrates his sovereignty. It demonstrates his ability, and therefore we should praise the Lord. But also, I want you to understand. So, so let me say this first. So, when we get to the book of Revelation, do you agree with me that God is able to even use his creation in judgment if that's what he chooses to do? By the way, you know, we get to the book of Revelation, further on in the book of Revelation, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And guess what? God's going to be sovereign. As well, now, if you follow that correlation, and if you follow that, and if you believe that, and you see that, and you glorify God because of that, there are really three other aspects in which the same things are true. For example, Um, uh, we've already seen in the book of Revelation and we, we know from past studies that God not only created the heavens and the earth, but before He created the heavens and the earth, He created the angels, right? The Bible calls them ministering spirits. The reason the angels exist is because God created them. Now let's be clear, and you all know me, I have to say it. I've said it a thousand times, you all know it. The way God created angels is not by creating people who die and become them. That is not true. It doesn't work that way. The angels are a separate order of created beings. And God created them. And God created them good. And God created them for His glory. And God employs His agents, the angels, right? In His work and in His ministry. You can just right think of the things that the angels have done. Um, uh, Angels did what? Well, they guarded the Garden of Eden, did they not? After man was cast out, he placed an angel there. Uh, angels came and fed some of the prophets of God in the Old Testament. Angels came. A host of them came and announced the birth of our Jesus. They prophesied that He's coming. They announced His birth. Uh, Angels have been at work in so many ways in so many places all throughout. We, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, will sometimes entertain angels unaware. You may not know that they're angels. I don't know that they're angels. But they are, and God uses them. They're ministering spirits. God uses those angels. Psalms talks about the fact that in terms of do we have a guardian angel, he places his angels around us that protect us and, and guide us. Um, angels are messengers of God. We saw um, uh, multiple times that God wanted to send a message to the earth and He sent it through an angel to come down to the earth. God created all of those angels, every single one of them. And God also, because He created them and maintains and sustains them, He also can use them in judgment. And we've already seen that, have we not? For example, look in look in the uh, remember the seal judgments in the in the sealed judgments in Revelation chapter six. Remember, chapter six, verse one. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, I <coughs> heard one of the living creatures. We had defined the living creatures earlier in Revelation chapter 4-5. chapter five. They are angels in the presence of God. The living creatures are the ones who say, Come, and when I look, behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, a crown. So God uses His angels to usher in the seal judgments. We saw that in the first seal in chapter 6 verse 1. We saw that in verse 3 when He broke the second seal. I heard the second living creature saying come. When He broke the third seal I heard the third living creature say come. God employs His angels in uh, ministry for His good and for His glory but also uses them in His sovereignty to bring about judgment and wrath upon the earth as well. By the way, we also see that God does that with His creation. So God uses with, with His created beings, people. God, We see that God uses His creation in judgments. We see that God uses the angels that He created. uses them in judgments. We also see that the human beings that were created in the image and likeness of God, that He uses in judgment as well. We saw this. Notice what it says. Um, for example, uh, in chapter 6, verse 4, uh, verse 3, when He broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature, there's the angel saying, Come, and another, a red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. Now look at this. And that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. So what we see, and we see this, and I don't have time to look at all of these things we've looked at so far, but what we see is, is God created man in His image and likeness to honor and glorify and live for His purposes, to save and to redeem, and even those who are not saved and are not redeemed are employed in the purposes of God, saved people employed in the purposes of God for our good and for His glory, and lost people are employed in the purpose of God even to carry out His tribulation and His wrath and His judgment. And we see that God uses not only the creation in wrath and judgment, not only the angels in wrath and judgment, not only human beings in wrath and judgment, but we also see one other group that God uses. And for this, I want us to briefly take a look uh, first at Ephesians chapter 6. I want us to see something in Ephesians six before we go to Colossians. I think it will help us. And remember, all of this this week and next week is laying the foundation for the things that we're going to study in Revelation verse nine. If you're with us when we walk through the book of Revelation, you will know that now, excuse me, the book of Ephesians you will know that Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 are really about our position in Christ. There are no imperatives, commands for the Christian to follow. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 are all about this is who you used to be. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you've been made alive in Christ. You used to follow the God of this world. Right, You used to follow after the ways of the world, but now you follow after God. For by grace are you saved. Everything in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 talk about our position in Christ, who we once were when we were at at enmity with God, and who we are now, now that we are part of the family of God. And it just states over and over and over who you are in Christ. Lost people are not simply good people who have yet to make a decision. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 give at least 50 descriptions of the differences between a lost person and a saved person. There's absolutely nothing for you to do except rejoice and be glad about your position in Christ as you read Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3. It's in Ephesians chapter 4-6 through 6 that we learn what the practice of a Christian ought to be. So based on the position that we learn about in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3... 4 and 5 in particular, and the first part of 6, talks about how we ought to walk as a Christian. In fact, there are five walks that we see here. For example, um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, employ you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called." You go down in verse chapter 4, verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you will walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding excluded from the life of God because of their ignorance. So he says don't walk like them. Walk <coughs> like uh, believers. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. So it goes all the way through. talks about your walk, your walk, your walk, how you ought to walk, and all of those things. And when you come to chapter 6, particularly in verse 10, it's after you have walked the path and the way that you ought to walk in your practice. It's in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are told now you are able to stand. Remember Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to... Now look at this. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. In fact, he reiterates it again. In verse 13, take up the full armor of God so you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm therefore. So because of your position in Christ and that you belong to Him, because of your walk in Christ, as we see in Ephesians 4 and 5, you are now, by God's grace and mercy, able to stand in the midst of the spiritual warfare. So in Ephesians chapter 6, we are reminded, look again in verse 11, so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. but Now, look at what our struggles are against. Our struggles are against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, what in the world is this all about? Well... You know that when God created the angels, the angels were good and perfect and holy. And yet in, found inside one of those angels that God created good was pride. And pride led that one high angel. Not low on a totem pole, high angel of God, pride was found in him. He wanted to be like God and assail the throne and take over as God. And you know Him as who? Satan. Satan, The devil. The serpent of old. All of those terms are used of this being. And when this being was cast from the earth... He was able to convince and to deceive one third of the angels to follow Him and to go with Him into His destination, into His casting out of heaven and come to earth. Don't you ever diminish the temptability of Satan because if he could convince a third of the angels in heaven to stop following God and to follow after Him, they're in heaven in a perfect world. But you and I are no match for Him apart from the work of God in our lives. So Satan came to earth he was still created by God with the other angels. He comes to the earth, and angels come with him, and we know them as fallen angels and fallen demons. In fact, go to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to wrap up here. Turn to the right. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 1. I want you to notice before you do that, though, notice the hierarchy in Ephesians 6. Notice that these fallen angels are arranged and organized. There are are rulers. There are powers. There are world forces. There are spiritual forces. And let's be clear... God just tells us they exist. He doesn't tell us the difference. I don't have a clue what the difference is between a ruler and a power. I don't know the difference between a power and a world force. And I don't know the difference between a world force and a spiritual force. But all of these fallen creatures are arranged and organized in these particular arrangements. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 ties everything that we've looked at together. And this is where we'll close today. Colossians 1.13 For He rescued us from the domain of darkness. That's, that's us. That's the believers in Christ. In order to be saved, God died on the cross of Calvary. He purchased you by His blood for His purposes. And in doing so, you may not have known that you resided in a domain of darkness, but God knew. And so it says that He rescued us, He redeemed us from the domain of darkness, and He transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. You didn't even know that took place when you were saved, but it did. Right? You're not the same. You don't even dwell in the same places. Lost people are lost. Saved people are saved. Lost people dwell in the domain of darkness, whether they know it or not. Saved people dwell in the kingdom of light of the Son whom He loves. There is a vast difference. There is an eternal difference between being saved and being lost. It's in this beloved Son, verse 14 says, in whom we have redemption. Only saved people have redemption. Only saved people have the forgiveness of sins. He, being Jesus, the agent of our salvation, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. That's a title. We've looked at that before. For by Him, notice verse 16, for by Him, by Jesus, all things... How many things, church? All things were created where? Both in heavens and on the earth. Visible, all the things we read about in Psalm 104, and invisible, all the angels of God, and even Satan and the demons, and all there. And by the way, we're going to see next week when we dig into this demon issue a little bit more, because it plays directly in Revelation chapter 9. Angels have the ability to fashion bodies for themselves and to be visible. Fallen angels do not, they always have to have a conduit. So whether they're talking about angels who haven't fast themselves, the things that are invisible, things so minute, you can't even see with a microscope, things that haven't even been seen or invented or don't even know exist. He created all of those things, both spiritual and material, visible and invisible. Now notice the language of this next phrase, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all of these things are are precisely the words that are used in Ephesians chapter 6 meaning that God created even the fallen world. God created angels good. They fell. God is not the author of evil but God uses it for His purpose and His glory and they ultimately came from His creation. All things even the things that match up and line up with Ephesians chapter 6, all things have been, been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now, why do we take time to do this? Because we have already seen in past studies that God uses the creation to bring about his judgment, right? He uses the creation when he created it for his good and for his glory. He also used it as an as a as a weapon of wrath, because when he destroys it, it affects everything upon the earth. We've also already seen that God uses the good angels. He uses angels. He used them in the seal judgments, and we're going to see time again he uses the presence angels and he we're going to see the act, the active work of angels in carrying out his plan of wrath and judgment upon the earth we have already seen that god created man in his image and likeness And He uses us for His glory. Some of us are redeemed. Most are not redeemed. And He uses the agents of creation for His glory to worship Him, to praise Him, to glorify Him, to make the Gospel known throughout the ends of the earth. And He also uses human agents in carrying out His judgments. And Beloved, listen to me. And listen to me carefully. God... Also, through His creations came the fallen angels, even Satan himself. And I want you to understand this and I want you to believe this with all of your heart. Just like you believe that about the creation and about the human agents and about the angels. I want you to understand that God is sovereign over Satan. He is sovereign over His demons. And what we're going to see when we get to Revelation chapter 9 is that God in His sovereignty uses demons to carry out His wrath upon the earth. There is nothing outside of the parameters for God to use and for God to use in bringing about His purposes and His plans, including... His wrath upon the earth. So, when we get to Revelation chapter 9 and we see that God unleashes demons upon the earth to pour out his wrath, you're going to see and know that they are under the sovereign hand and working of God. And you're going to see that God is so powerful, he sends them out to accomplish his purposes. And he says how long they're going to stay out, okay, when he releases them, how long they're going to be released, and at the end of that five-month period of time, every one of them comes back exactly as they're supposed to do because God is sovereign even over the demons. And he even tells them stay off his grass, and they obey. When you get to Revelation chapter 9, beloved, we're going to see some things there that God uses these agents to bring about his wrath. And it's all for his glory. And we're going to pick up here next week and look a little more at these demons, who they are. How about this one? What they look like when we get to Revelation chapter 9, okay? And how they um, are used by God for his glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. Lord, it's easy to get so wrapped up in the details. And it's so easy to, to miss points. We fade in and out of the message. We have a hard time um, uh, getting, it, getting it all. Um, and yet, Your Word is so rich. It is so powerful in our lives. Even as Mark shared with us at the beginning of our time today, it's Your Word and our pursuit of You that brings wisdom to us and in our lives. Father, I pray that You would give us wisdom and insight and understanding. I pray, Father, that we would take time to marvel at Your creation and the purposes for which You created it. I pray, God, that we would honor and cherish life of humans and that we would do all we could do to be pro life both at the beginning stages of life and at the ending stages of life, that we would honor and cherish life in all of its purposes. Father, I pray that we would um, be very clear on the reality of um, angels and demons. And I pray, Father, that we would have a healthy relationship and understanding of both. We would celebrate the angels and the work that they do as ministering spirits to us to bring your message to us, to declare your truths, who even sometimes, Lord, we entertain unaware. And Father, may we even know that you are absolutely sovereign and in control of even the demons upon this earth. Father, when You release them, they go exactly where You say go and do exactly what You say do and return exactly when they say return. And Father, even the work that evil forces do in obedience to You, they do in a way that brings You glory. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. It's beyond our ability to understand. But Father, we believe it. We are persuaded, as the Apostle Paul says, because it is in Your Word and therefore it is true. I pray, Father, that You would give us a healthy understanding of angels and demons. I pray, Father, You give us a healthy understanding of the purpose that man was created and how he could live for Your glory. And I pray that You would give us awareness of creation all around us that we may reflect on Your goodness and on Your glory. So Father, we are so thankful that we are saved by the name of Jesus and only by the name of Jesus. And Father, we sing about that beautiful name and give You the praise and glory. It's in His name that we pray. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close with a song. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, then even today while we enjoy our time of fellowship and this back-to-school thing, you come to me and let's talk about it. I don't want anybody to understand the truths that we are teaching and preaching these days and not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Mark, Martha, Jason, Anita, so many of you, I'm sure everyone here would be more than willing to to help you to know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And our desire is that you know Him and that you follow Him all the days of your life. Let us pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we just pray, Lord, for this day. And we thank You for the goodness of it. We thank You for this meal that we are about to partake in. Father, we have eaten spiritually from Your Word today and it satisfies us. Now, Father, fill us with the physical food that we're about to partake in. Father, may it satisfy us as well. We are so thankful for this church family and the fellowship that we have. Bless us. Bless our fellowship today and continue to enable us to strive ahead in that which You've given us to do. We love You and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Civil, have some directions. Uh,
1: let, me, let me say this to everyone. If you'll fellowship in here uh, until we get everything else ready, uh, that would be wonderful. And we want today to recognize all of our students who will be going back to school. We're so proud of all of you, and we want to wish you the very best year because we know that you are going to let God be your guide, and you're going to do the very best you can. And for whose glory? yes indeed
0: so please fellowship for a few minutes the ladies have just about got it ready and we'll let the students go first well, that, all right before we before we fellowship though and we break away listen um I, I want to draw your attention to this martha just reminded me because you know my brains elsewhere um but look next saturday august 18th uh-huh. um martha tell them what, what this is I, as many of you as can Let's, let's try to plan together and go and be an encouragement to another church planter.
1: So um, we've talked about Tamron uh, before. He's planted the Pakistani Baptist Church in Kerry. He also works in High Point with the uh, Muslim population there. And we've prayed for him um, many times. They're having their grand opening or their launch service Saturday at 5 o'clock. And I have the address and everything. It says Urdu, Hindi, and Punjabi service um, and it would be such a huge encouragement to Tamarin and the Pakistani uh, congregation there. And they can have fellow believers come and just celebrate with them and worship the Lord um, at that service. And there, it will be a lot of it, or all of it, in Urdu. So it'll be really its an awesome experience to hear people worshiping in other languages. And you can know, just imagine. I mean God understands every language on this earth and I've been learning almost my whole life to learn French. <laughs> so it just it amazes me to hear people worship God in their heart language and know that God knows and understands that. Um, so Sarah and I are definitely planning on going. Anybody else you would like to go, we can I can forward you the information. You know, we could go together. Um, it's at five o'clock and it's in carriage. 1503 Walnut Street so you know it's not so far Uh, but it will be a huge um, encouragement to them so pray about it think about it and let me know if you have any questions
0: and we'll talk about it again on, on Wednesday as well, about uh, getting together. And um, what, a, what, a great, what a great day to go and to uh, encourage him uh, on Saturday uh, at 5. Thanks for reminding me, uh, Martha. I'll leave that up there so you can get the information for a few minutes. All right. Now you can partake of the fellowship before you partake of the food. Mm-hmm.